Hey there, and welcome back to the Will and Rob Show. Uh, my name is Will Stockdale, I'm a ministry associate with Ministry State here in Washington, D.C. Here, as always, and truly as always, I have never recorded without the man himself, but here with uh, ministry associate Robert Hassler, director of communications for us up here at MTS DC uh, on this super gusty and windy November day, mid November day up here in the nation's capital. Um, and we are just really excited and honored to have with us for our episode this week, Dr. David Corey. Uh, Dr. Corey is the director of Baylor and Washington up here in DC. He's a professor of political science in the honors program. Um, he received his PhD in political science from Louisiana State University and then has published widely on areas such as uh, Just War Tradition uh, and then also a work on the Sophists and Plato's Dialogue. And so he is currently working on a book entitled The Politics of War and the Politics of Peace. And so we uh, reached out to a friend to see if he would be willing to come on and talk about um, Christian institutions and the topic of Christian institution building. Uh, and a little bit about Baylor and Washington, and then hopefully we'll get to talk about political theology and how Christians can think about the topic of uh, political engagement and uh, a proper viewing of the subject. And so, Dr. Corey, thank you so much for being with us this afternoon. Will and Rob, the honor is all mine. Thank you for having me. Well, we wanted to start off by just getting a little bit of your story, a little bit of background of how you ended up at Baylor and Waco as an Aggie. Um, I wish that I could say that this was uh, an Aggie in Washington program, but it's not. And I'll also say that from my experience in DC the last two years, I have met countless um, really great people from your program, people who are entering on the Hill, uh, people who work like uh, Molly Moore and um, Nate Mills as well. And so you guys have done a tremendous job of, of uh, having a footprint in this city and of making an impact in the area. Thanks so much. I'm surprised and saddened that you had to use the word Aggie in my presence. But, uh, you know, overlooking that and just moving on, uh, I appreciate that uh, you've noticed that the program's been growing. Um, uh, we, have, uh, we have about 20 students up there every semester, and they're in really fine internships because they're able to do full-time internships. These students are just cream of the crop. Baylor students, and Baylor is really a fantastic school, so when you take the cream of the crop, you're you're getting a great bunch of students. Um, I, I had the opportunity a week or two ago to give a lecture at Harvard to some of the students in the Kennedy School, and I told them I was very eager to see what students at the Baylor of Cambridge would look like, and it uh, turns out that their students are just as good as ours. Um, well so done. I, yeah, I'm very proud of those, those Harvard students for keeping up with us. They've overcome so much <laughs> to get to where they are. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you asked me how I ended up at Baylor, I suppose. That's a circuitous route. Um, I won't start with, with being a classical musician and having a conservatory degree. Uh, and I won't what talk about it. I'm an orchestral tuba player. Okay. And my wife, Elizabeth Corey, who also does political philosophy, is a classical pianist. And we met at Oberlin Conservatory. But I said I wasn't going to tell you that. Uh, I studied law at, at uh, Edinburgh uh, in Scotland. And... Um, ended up as a stockbroker in, in Louisiana when I started to pay attention to a philosopher named Eric Vogelin. And a lot of young people haven't heard of Vogelin, but a generation ago, he was really, he died in the 80s. He was really um, one of the two or three premier political philosophers, and especially 
um, for people who are believers, because unlike people like Leo Strauss or Hannah Arendt, for example, or Michael Oakeshott, he paid a lot of attention to God's re revelation unfolding in history. And so he was very attractive to me. And there was a Vogelin Institute at Louisiana State University, which is partly what attracted me to that institution. Uh, I did my uh, PhD there and came out and got a job right away at Baylor. I've been at Baylor since 2002. And if in the political science department, now in the honors program, also in the philosophy department. Um, so I, I teach across the across three departments and I also teach graduate students. Um, the, the Baylor and Washington program is, is really interesting because up until you know five years ago, roughly, we were we were paying a lot of money to send students to American University to get basically a secular education up in DC. And it's it's you know, they've got a good program there. But it did eventually lead us to wonder why we were doing that, especially when we could be engaging in Christian formation uh, if we were to build a program of our own while simultaneously saving money by not sending students to American University. And so when Ken Starr was president of Baylor, we started this. Um, and my predecessor as the director was uh, Tom Hibbs, who was Dean of the Honors College at the time, has since been president of the University of Dallas. And now he's back as an endowed chair here in our philosophy department at Baylor. We're so glad to have Tom back. Um, Tom passed on the directorship to me and I've just been running as fast as I can trying to grow this, this program um, for the benefit of the students, but not only for the benefit of the students, we also have a really public facing dimension to the program. I'd be surprised if you hadn't seen some part of that. We put on events and before COVID they were live events on Capitol Hill. And now they tend to be at Zoom events in part because our audience has quadrupled on Zoom. Uh, yeah, we had 1200 at one event, uh, you know, on Capitol Hill, we'd be lucky to get 200 in a room. So in some ways, Zoom is here to stay for us, although we still will do live events where we, I think, really want to get at policymakers directly and get them to come over from their offices and, and be at, at, in a live setting. But we, we do events where we take very controversial matters that are presently concerning our citizens and our policymakers. And if we sense that there's a special angle or a deep concern that Christians or just religious believers, even Jews and Muslims would have uh, in that area, uh, we try to do some thinking out loud in a, in a public way that um, could potentially help policymakers, but also just help us believers get, get some grounding and perspective on these issues. And that's been tremendous. We, we maybe do 10 a year, that maybe is on the high end, eight to 10 a year, but probably, you know, I think we do about 10. Um, environmental stewardship, civility, is it still a virtue, charitable discourse, and um, gosh, uh, things that have to do with race, things to have to do with education and our, our schools and universities. Uh, we, did a, we did a Muslim, Jewish, Christian dialogue on higher ed, so you can sort of get the flavor of some of, some of these events. Um, th let me just mention, because it's a good place to insert this, uh, totally typical of what we do. I'll be on Capitol Hill uh, Friday with the Faith and Law Society uh, at the Kirby Center. Uh, Rob, you know the Kirby Center. Um, and uh, I will be joined by a colleague of mine from Calvin College. His name is Micah Watson. And we will be thinking out loud about what Christian political judgment looks like and how it differs from secular judgment and how it might benefit from some of the categories of natural law that our Catholic friends are much more schooled in and comfortable talking about. So 
Micah is a Protestant, we're going to think, we'll be two Protestants thinking out loud about political judgment. And that'll be at noon. But those are the kind of, we have this outward facing, uh, and I think very important uh, mission at Baylor and Washington that just comes under, we just call it civic education, but we really do have religious believers in mind. And then we can take, go ahead. Yeah. I was curious, you know, one of the things that we're interested in and that you guys have done so well and that you mentioned is, is this institution building as you've taken this project from your predecessor and are running with it to build it. And you mentioned that there were secular gaps in the character formation of the students. So I was wondering as a Christian institution and as a place that is looking to build Christian men and women, what were some of those gaps that you saw and what are some specific ways that Baylor Washington is able to fill those and, um, I get, yeah, fill them, create them, and buttress them, and support them for a lifelong um, life in public service. Yeah, that's interesting because I think the easiest answers there are kind of a negative. First, to begin with kind of a negative assessment of what's not present in other programs, uh, and that Christians I think need when they're when they get up to Washington, which is a in many ways a sinful city, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, Christians need to brace themselves for what they're going to find there. Then we could lean towards more of a positive answer about what we're supplying. But the, clo- the further we get to a positive answer, the more I think we're going to be having a conversation about political theology. And so let me just start with the low hanging fruit. And then if you want to prompt me to reflect more about political theology, I think that would that would be helpful. Oh, let's um, go. We're, we're, okay, we're going there. <laughs> All right. Um, so these Christians come up to Washington. There's. Um, there is a disproportionate number of Texans in Washington. I've never done the surveys. Maybe Rob, you could survey it. I think I know why it is. Uh, I, I, I know it because I, I'm a careful student of Plato's Republic. And in the Republic, Plato says, if you have a democratic regime where anybody can do anything they want, the thumatic souls, those are souls that really care about justice. They really care about what's right, um, will disproportionately go into politics. And I don't know if anybody's met some Texans, but they're thumat- they tend to be thematic souls. Oh, so if in an in a open democratic that. environment, you're going to find a lot of Texans in Washington, D.C., and so you do. And I think that's especially true with Baylor Texans, because when you are also animated by a kind of a Christian sense that we can be a leavening for our polity and that we can do good that wouldn't be done the same way by somebody who's not Christian, you can start to understand why a lot of Baylor students would want to be up there. And the Baylor alumni network that's up there is tremendous. And we wanted to be able to put our undergrads in touch with the Baylor uh, alums in a kind of mentoring ship, mentoring capacity. So when our students come up, they have a week of um, professional development. And I would just call it Christian professional development because it's not merely, it is professional development, just like any school would offer or maybe better than any school would offer. But, but we also realize that our students are believers. And so how can we put them in touch with um, seasoned professionals who have reflected and actually experienced the difficulties of being a Christian in a, in a, in a largely secular space. I say largely secular, obviously there are a lot of Christians at work in our nation, but there's, there's, there's no litmus test for that. It's a, it's a very mixed environment. Um, A lot of these students want to have conversations about now I'm, getting towards political theology, what does it look like? What are some of the ways in which it makes sense for our Christianity to intersect with politics? And if you interview students, you'll find quite a diversity 
of settled answers here, although I, I try to unsettle the answers a little bit, but there, there are quite a range of settled answers from something like a sort of um, extreme version of what Rod Dreher has been talking about, his Benedict option, where we're more or less opting out. Uh, that's been a little bit of a moving target for Rod over the years, but, um, but more or less uh, dissociating ourselves from political action and from the secular world to a kind of all-in evangelicalism that sees this primarily as a Christian country and that it's our job to pass legislation that God would favor. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not at either of those extremes myself, though I, um, I understand the, the thinking that can get you there and I try to be as accommodating as possible while opening up this as, as a kind of a question. You know, I mean, it's, it's, helpful, to, it's helpful to realize that you get radically different political theologies from a number of our favorite people. And just because they're favorite doesn't mean they're all compatible. So Augustine, St. Thomas, Luther, Calvin, um, the Anabaptists. When you ask any of these people, if you could, what they think when you read their writings, what they think about what politics looks like, the answers are incredibly different. You know, um, there's a movement on the Catholic right right now that some of your listeners will recognize the name of, which is integralism, uh, where they're arguing for a closer, a much closer relationship between the church and the state um, so that we don't have to be bifurcated souls, that our religious selves and our, our political selves can be the same selves. One has to be sympathetic to this, um, though, though I, I'm, I'm in favor of, of a kind of a, of, of a liberal approach that, that is our heritage. But I don't know how many Calvinists would know right off the bat that that's, that's actually Calvin's political theology on the Protestant side, the kind of political thought theology he had in mind for Geneva, which was a theocracy. So there's a Protestant version of that too. St. Augustine, who was more influential for Luther, uh, and I tend to settle down in this, this sort of area, is pretty skeptical about what the political can do. Um, it's, the gospel does not teach us to expect that, the, that politics will save us. Um, not even that we should expect um, very much in, of politics in terms of formation, unlike say somebody like Aristotle who, or St. Thomas who would be open to politics forming us. For Augustine, the highest hope for earthly politics was in his, his phrase, some modicum of peace that would allow Christians to pursue the real good, uh, salvation in the city of God. That's, that's an incredibly sobering description of uh, the, the goal or, or what we can expect of politics, some modicum of peace. And Robert, you might have a question, but I, I did want to ask that it seems that there's a lot of Christians who have a settled understanding of what political theology is or how things ought to be operating politically. And then there's the more there's a lot of weaknesses in there. So I was wondering, what, what do you think some areas of weakness that need to be developed in, the, in American Christianity in terms of the, the conversation around political theology? Well, if you don't mind my being hard hitting, uh, I, I think the weakness, a, the major one that I see and worry most about is that if, if you just analyze some of our fellow Christians' actions, don't listen to their words so much as their actions, but sometimes their words too, they end up unwittingly becoming Pelagian. Now, Pelagianism is a heresy uh, from the Orthodox, from the Orthodox Roman Catholic perspective. But what is this heresy? 
it's the heresy of thinking that the fall um, didn't damage us so much, if at all, that we can't work to bring God's kingdom on earth. You hear this, don't you, in, in your Christian circles? I hear it all the time. I'm doing kingdom work. I, I, I like the phrase kingdom work, but I worry about what it means because in my view, and this is certainly St. Augustine's view, very little will be changing in history before Christ comes again to bring his kingdom uh, to us. Um, I suspect that will be an earthly kingdom, but notice who's doing the bringing, it's Christ. Mm. Um, and I think there's a lot of, I, I, I think uh, Christians sometimes lose that plot line. They see, they see, for example, progressives being so agitated about politics and trying to change the character of politics and to quote, bend the arc of history to justice, et cetera. And they get to thinking, well, let's, let's do some of this too. Um, but it really presupposes it, to, to, to be very active in trying to improve our world uh, through political work presupposes an awful lot. One of the first things it presupposes that makes me very nervous is that improving our world is the game we should be playing as opposed to, as opposed to preparing for the next world. Um, and the other thing that worries me is that we can do the improving. There's a, there's a bad temptation to pride here and even hubris. Uh, that we can do this work for Jesus and that we can bring about for ourselves a kind of a heavenly kingdom on earth. Now, you might say, and your listeners might say, what, uh, what does Dr. Corey think we should be doing? This is insane. Um, I don't think it's insane. I really don't think that this is our, this is, this is our, our kingdom here. Um, and it seems to me that the most powerful things Christians can do through their witness isn't done through political instruments it's done through individual witness. Um, and, you know, I just don't think politics saves people in part because politics is compulsory uh, and, and, it, and it's grounded in coercion and compulsion and coercion are not the recipe for saving grace. Uh, it, did I mention grace, right? <laughs> uh, so I really think one of the first questions, and I'm gonna to talk to Micah about this on, on Capitol Hill uh, on Friday, as you're thinking about political judgment or political reasoning, very high up in your initial thoughts, you start by thinking about charity and then very high up the chain of reasoning, I think one has to ask oneself, why should politics be the mechanism or the instrument by which I'm pursuing this? I think there should be a presumption against politics being the instrument. Now, there are obviously some times when politics is the right instrument to pursue um, things that are of deep concern to Christians. But I don't think it's always the right instrument. And there's a tendency, I think, to, to rush to politics when really it's the domain of the churches and individuals that ought to be and charities that ought to be doing the work. Rob, I see you nodding. Yeah, I think I think all that's wonderful. I, I definitely have uh, heard that tendency that you're talking about to talk more about um, what are we doing? What are we doing to bring the kingdom? And going back to what you were saying about that sort of the modicum of peace. I mean, the, the thing that came to my mind was, you know, first Timothy two of, you know, we pray for the leaders, political leaders, so that we can live a quiet and, uh, you know, godly life dignified in every way. I mean, that doesn't sound like a lot of like activism. That sounds a lot of, you know, being in our local places where the Lord has called us and doing, you know, faithful work wherever, he, where, wherever he has us. I guess a, a question I have is, you know, this, this talk on Friday, you're going to have a lot of Capitol Hill staffers who are there and a mm -hmm. lot of young people come to DC and they have 
a lot of ambition and passion for what they're doing. And, you know, they want to change the world. They want to fix all of our problems. Um, and a lot of them are Christians. And what would you say to somebody uh, who came and said, well, Dr. Corey, like, well, then why am I doing this work? Why am I in politics? Why has the Lord brought me here uh, to do this kind of work? What would you say to someone like that? That's a, that's a really good question. And, and one of the things that I appreciate uh, is that vicariously you're asking it. I mean, that, that students would come to ask that question, I think is, a really, is, is coming to a really good position. So just to pause to say at the, at the outset, there, I suspect that you're right, that students who are very ambitious, in quotes, um, notice that that's only a good thing if, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Um, Socrates exactly. says to Socrates says to Euthyphro, "I admire your ambition. If it's um, if it's in the interest of what is good, if not, whoa, <laughs> right? So you've or got Julius these... Caesar with Shakespeare. I think of Julius Caesar, uh, yeah. Mark Antony's speech as well. Perfect. Yeah, ambition is not an intrinsic good. It, it's an instrumental good, and it and what it's chained to needs to be oriented correctly. So." Um, I think it's okay for students to have a, a philosophical moment when they question whether uh, becoming president and uh, channeling their Christian goodwill into um, national politics is exactly the thing that Jesus called us to do. Um, I do think that there are, and this goes back to Baylor, Baylor and Washington's outward public facing, um, public facing stance. I think there are a lot of ways in which Christianity can helpfully inform uh, policy thinking. And especially because the, the politics, politics is, is a rough and tumble area and there's a lot of enmity there actually. Um, the late Hannah Arendt used to love to say, politics is, is not kindergarten, <laughs> it's not romper room. It's a pretty rough place. Our call to charity is a game changer. It is not just, and not just in the outcomes of policy, but in how we comport ourselves and how we think about um, relating to others in a political regime. It's not to be expected that uh, non-Christians are going to be operating from a principle of charity. Indeed, if I could be so, so straightforward as to say, this is our revelation. There's so much about, a, so much about our religion that, that somebody like Plato or Aristotle could have known and did know that there is a God, that we should make God the center of our life. But this idea that charity, that loving your neighbor and God uh, is the cornerstone of all the prophets um, and the law uh, is revelation. And so we shouldn't expect on Capitol Hill for people to, to know that unless, unless there are Christians there. And so now I can just ask in the abstract, do you think it would make a difference if there were people in public conversations who are operating on a basis of charity and that that could have a good effect on not only our political associations together, so it wouldn't be so violent and hostile, um, Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives, but also on our policy making that we make sure not to have overly burdensome policies that are actually animated by distrust and anger towards the people we're trying to govern. You see, I think that's, that's where the Christianity really, really matters. And that's what I would say to young people. It's, it might be the relationship that you have with others in your office that turns out to be one of the most important impacts you'll have. It doesn't, it doesn't, it maybe doesn't come all the way down into legislation. It, come, it, it has to do with witnessing one-to-one -one, the way Jesus did witnessing one-to-one. -one. I, uh, yeah. go ahead. Will. 
Well, I, I was going to say, I, I, a friend passed along to me an article by Edmund Clowney about the politics of the kingdom. And it's mostly about a reminder of Christians to really focus hard on uh, the Lord of the kingdom, Jesus Christ, and the community of the kingdom, the, the body of believers. And that when we get our ecclesiology right, when we understand our ecclesiology and that it is a spiritual kingdom and that it, the rules that we have for governing our church are not the same that would govern the state, uh, not to get into too much of the two kingdoms bifurcation here, but that there is clearly a um, an importance. And we get so much right in other areas of our life. We get our understanding of the church and the kingdom of God right first. You have to, yeah, you have to have that right first. I love the way you put it. And I, I you know, I, I, I heard what you said about maybe not wanting to have too much of a two kingdoms view, but what, what's really positive about what you just said that Christians can learn from, it took me a long time to understand this. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you the principle and then I'll cite one example. Um, my colleague, Matthew Lee Anderson, whom I admire so much, puts it this way. There's, there's not a straight line from your political belief, I'm sorry, from your, from your religious beliefs to, political, to public policy. And the reason is that um, we're not a church. Hmm. Politics is not a church. We're not all converted and we're not all animated by the Holy Spirit. And plus, even if we are, it's a compulsory organization. So there's pluralism to deal with, for example. And the way this works out practically is I think Christians in the past have sometimes with completely good conscience read, for example, the beginning of Acts, where the apostles come into community, where they sell their property. Is it Acts 5? And then I think it's very easy for a Christian to say, well, okay, so that's what we're called to do. Our politics should look like that. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Actually, if you instituted that in pluralist America, you should look for coercion. Um, the way socialism has usually gone, you should look for some dead bodies uh, and bankruptcy. Now, now, why is that? Why can't you take a principle that is recommended to us in the book of Acts and not apply it straightforwardly to our political community? Because our political community is not a church. Citizens are not all believers. Um, there are things that politics has to tend to uh, and, and, and in our fallen world has to use some techniques to tend to them like violence that is not usually necessary in our churches. So it actually seems to me to be a, non, a grand non sequitur to think it follows that if I see this in scripture, I should want this in politics. The work is much harder than that. We have, to, we have to think about what we're called to do in scripture and then ask what charity would require in the political domain and being wise as serpents about what are likely to be various outcomes of various policies and ask whether you think that's charitable. I don't think socialism is ever charitable. Uh, except where, where the one place I've noticed that it works, and I mean one place, only place that it has ever worked, is in a monastery hmm. where we agree in our religious beliefs. We're there voluntarily. We don't have a dispute about who the authority is. So there are a lot of conditions there that make that kind of uh, common life work that don't hold in our polity, right? So, you know, Will, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to sort of fill out, fill out what you just said about Christians in, in good faith and trying to, trying to exercise goodwill, sometimes mistakenly try to institute politically what they would want to see in their churches. I think all the event we saw in San Antonio this weekend at uh, John Hagee's church, that kind of disaster of a, 
of an event that is a unique environment. Uh, there, there's certainly not a lot of John Hagee churches in terms of uh, he's kind of a unique animal. But Robert, I think I cut you off in terms of question you had from earlier. Well, you know, I you kind of went where I was kind of going with this, which is that um, you know when people think about you know interacting sort of their faith with their politics, there is this. I think rightly so knee-jerk reaction to say, okay, I'm going to go to scripture first. And what I get from scripture, that's what I'm going to apply. And what we, what we find and what you're talking about is that it's not a direct line. There, there isn't a lot, I think as one of our, or as our boss says, Chuck, that, you know, the Bible's just not very loud on democratic republics. That's just not a, a category. It knows that's right. So you're not going to find a lot there, that's uh, but it does trying have, to do. <laughs> yeah. So, but it does have things like, you know, Romans 13 and, and basic principles that we have to figure out then and apply, I guess, Kind of the other part of this is, uh, right, is um, the role of American history has to play with this, that, are you know, people that want are sort of steering us more towards that integralist vision sort of maybe discount the fact that America has, what, 200 you know, years of the current uh, establishment. Um, and so going against that would be really hard. Wh- where in, in this conversation do we need to consider uh, America's religious and political history as well? Yeah, I mean, I'm not... A, I- I'll take, I'll just say I'm not a historian, but that does not going to stop me from saying a couple really elementary things. It's how we roll on this show. (laughs) It's how we roll. Okay. (laughs) I mean, one thing I would say to those who are tempted by integralism is not to forget to ask why uh, the medieval dispensation broke down. Hmm. Right. So if you're proposing to go back to restore something along the lines of what we had in the middle ages, why did that seem so undesirable that, that, that history started to prefer these liberal democratic style regimes? Um, that's a good question. If you can't answer it, that's a problem. A- another thing to say is it's very easy to compare the present day America with its pathologies. Uh, I'm not one to deny them. Uh, there's an ugly underside to liberal secular life. Um, it, it allows all the freedoms that it allows, um, lets, uh, makes it so that things can be done that religious people find abhorrent. Um, and it also tends, there, it, without, unless we learn to build institutions, to come back to your original query, Will, unless we learn to build institutions, we, believe, we believers, um, there will be a tendency to, to increasingly secularize over time and to get thinner and thinner and thinner. It doesn't mean the regime is bad. It does mean we who occupy it need to learn how to resist its defects. But what, here's the point. I don't think it's a valid comparison. In fact, I think it's a methodological mistake to compare contemporary liberalism with its defects to some idealized regime that you can dream up in your head that doesn't have those defects. What you have to compare is contemporary liberalism with its defects to another credibly possible regime with its likely defects. That's the correct comparison. And there is no rival right now that I can see. There is no rival to contemporary liberalism um, that has been tried, that, that, that has defects we would be comfortable living with. Well, as you just kind of insinuated, socialism has never been tried, of course. Isn't that kind of what we all... <laughs> Nothing has been tried more than socialism in every context, in, in nations, in um, neighborhoods in Indiana, uh, in, um, in the international sphere, in empires, in monasteries. This is the one thing that's been tried on every conceivable scale and it just doesn't work. Yeah. Um, so 
you know, American history, there's no doubt that we started in, as a more religious country than we are now. This is par for the course. Who, who, who wouldn't have expected this? Because if you have a country dedicated to freedom, people will become different over time. We will have increasingly what we philosophers call pluralism, which is a disagreement about what is fundamentally good to do with your, with your life. Our regime has been able to accommodate pluralism and it can within bounds. Um, and it, I think it can continue to do so, but I don't think Christians are um, correct to throw their hands up and say, a Christian nation is no longer Christian. We need, to, we need a revolution. Um, you know, there's too much Luther in me. I'm not a Lutheran, uh, but the part of Luther that I resonate with is where he says, Christian nation, get behind me, Satan. I have no idea what you're talking about. If, if I see a Christian flag flying over an army of a European army, all I know is that this is blasphemy. There, there's probably not 10 Christians, real Christians in that army. You'd probably find as many in the, in the Turkish army as you would find in the European army. So there is a real puzzle about what we mean when we talk about a Christian nation. Uh, I don't think we are one, by the way. I'm, uh, I think in uh, our very early colonial history, there was maybe more plausibility, plausibility about talking in that way but I don't, I don't use that phrase anymore. Well, um, thank you for these thoughts. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing um, your insights and thoughts on institutional building and institution building and, and uh, engaging with political theology. What are some events coming up soon with Baylor and Washington that we should be on the lookout for? Well, let me just make a plug for one thing. Uh, we, we, you can go to our website, by the way, um, you can Google Baylor in Washington, and we have an events page where you can see what's coming up and, at any point. But uh, my team and I are crafting right now, we, right before COVID, we were going to do a summer workshop, maybe a week long, on political theology and some of the different varieties of it, uh, and try to encourage people to think through their own, their own position on what they think the relationship of religious belief and political practice would be. We're back to planning that again. Um, I can't say 100% it will happen, but if it does, and I think it will, uh, you'll see that advertised on our website. And I think if you're, to the extent that your audience uh, is interested in these questions that I've been discussing, and especially if people in your audience are working, are young people working in Washington, especially in politics, I would commend you, I would commend this program to you and ask you to apply for the summer. I don't have a date yet. Um, but if you keep an eye on our website, a week-long study of political theology, where we're bringing in people like Eric Nelson from Harvard. Uh, we'll bring in. We'll bring in the um, at least every major denomination and every outlook uh, to to, um, to have a kind of dialogue about how we should be thinking through these matters. Great. Well, thank you so much again for coming on. Really enjoyed getting to hear from you and uh, listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. Uh, you can follow Robert on Twitter at Artie Hass, or you can follow me as Doctor Will. And are you on Twitter, Doctor Corey? Not uh, on purpose. <laughs> no, I, I have an account. I, I don't use it. Um, and I try not to look at other people's Twitter accounts. But Rob, I, I don't blame you. That's fine. You know, and Will, you've got your Twitter. That's good. I'm sure you're, do, you're doing great work there on Twitter. Yes, it really shedding the light of the kingdom through Twitter every every day. <laughs> if so. you just if you're just nice on Twitter, you're doing great work. Well, yeah, you want to learn, <laughs> learn patience and charity. I think Twitter is probably the first place to go. So. Yeah, I do have a web page that's easily uh, discoverable on Google. Uh, okay. And, uh, you know, people who are interested in being my friend can, can Facebook me or okay. you know, whatever. But okay. anyway, I'm, I'm thankful that you invited me on and it's great to meet you both. Uh, keep up the terrific work. 
Thank you. Well, we will uh, be back with y'all next week. 